0: If you'd open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 7 through 19. We're going to come back to Genesis 3, I think, one more time before we move on. But we're going to at least be looking at it this week and next week. Let's go before the Lord and ask Him to illuminate this text to us. Lord, we thank You and praise You and worship You this morning. We know that You have used throughout the ages Your Word to declare the great truths of the Scriptures, to draw men to Yourself, to lift up the great salvation that was shown forth some 2,000 years ago in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that by Your Spirit, we would hear and see what the Spirit is saying to this church today. Lord, would you once again, as you have delighted in the past, strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand, and we will give honor to God's Word and read it together. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. Have any of you ever asked yourself this question? I just kind of feel weird in my own skin. Have you ever asked that question? Do you ever felt that way? I just kind of feel weird in my own skin. Have you ever lied awake at night and asked yourself, why do people feel weird in their own skin? Why do they? Have you ever asked yourself, why do some people feel at odds with God? And have you ever asked yourself, Why you don't feel at odds with God? What I want you to start to think about in this passage is is that, and I want you to begin to, to dig deeply into it and begin to see that at some point for you to really begin to understand what's happening in this passage, you've got to become a person who understands and admits to yourself that sometimes you just feel weird in your own skin and you have no real explanation for it. You have to begin to be a person who says, you know what? It's not my family. It's not my job. It's not my culture. It's not my society that makes me feel so strange and out of place and weird. There's something else. There's something more. Those things may extenuate it and create those problems, but there's something else going on. And I also want to say to you that at some point, even as we talked about in our Christian education hour this morning, there is a sense to where if God doesn't trouble you, you have the wrong view of God. When God comes calling, it typically is a rather frightening experience for those who see him for who he truly is. And in this passage what I want you to start to see is that God brings news that is crushing. It is crushing. There is a sense of just overwhelming reality that is breaking in all over the place on Adam and Eve and on the serpent. It's crushing. The question we have to ask ourselves to what end is it crushing? And I want you to begin to think about, because I think what's happening here, and I hope that we see it by the end, is this. That what God is doing as He brings judgment on the man and the woman is not to exact a payment for their sin. That's not why He's crushing them. He's not coming to say, you owe me. It's not His ultimate agenda. But rather to drive them to consider the horror of their sin. To see the depth of just how far they've fallen. To begin to deal with that. To begin to openly see we have fallen far. And to look outside themselves for an answer and for a cure. That's really what he's about. That's really what's happening in this passage. And I hope that by the time we're done, you will see that. Here's how I want to unpack this passage for us this morning. I want us first to look at these three questions that God is asking here. And I want you to realize in some ways that, that what God is doing is he's, he, he shows up and we have a sense that whether, whether you believe that Adam and Eve live for a long period of time after creation or whether you believe they live for a short period of time after creation is quite frankly an irrelevant conversation to me. The text doesn't tell you and it's really not important. The important thing is that in some sense, God showing up in the cool of the evening And really, it might be better to say God's showing up with the breath, the spirit of the evening or the morning of the day. Whichever way you want to look at that. Different commentaries take it different ways. Some people believe that Adam sinned at noon and the spirit came in the evening. I agree with Calvin and others that most likely the spirit of the day is most likely probably in in the morning. That possibly Adam spent his night with Eve estranged in the trees all night in the darkness. And with the dawn of the light, God came walking. And if you remember, back in Genesis chapter 1, we're told that the spirit, the ruach, which is the word there that sometimes, tr- the cool or the breath, was hovering over the, the waters. So here comes God. Now I think it's important because notice the frame in which God shows up. He shows up and begins to ask them questions. And the thing we need to ask ourselves is why? To what end? What's he after? I mean, after all he is God, right? I mean, we do we all do get this. It's God. And if he's God, then he already knows everything. And if he already knows everything, why is he asking questions? He already knows. What's the point? It seems to me, in some ways, we have to begin to get at that. And I think the answer that he's after is, initially, is he wants Ab and Eve to realize the seriousness of what they've done. He wants them to understand that sin is serious, that what they've done is not just, well, we ate of the fruit. You know, it was, it was a bad idea. You know, obviously, you had given us some pretty helpful instructions, and, and you know, we just we just didn't listen, you know? You know the old hymn, Lord prone to wander, Lord I feel it, right? We're, we're in this together. Do you understand? God comes to probe Adam and to find out where he's really at. Because here's some of the things that I want you to understand that goes on, not just in Adam's heart in this passage, but in our own hearts. And that's this. The heart has an unbelievable adaptability at denying the seriousness of sin. It's not really that bad. And we do that in a multiplicity of ways. It's somebody else's fault. You don't understand the circumstances. Well, if you were in my shoes, or maybe it's even, well, if you didn't make that woman so dead gum attractive, I wouldn't have had these problems if she didn't have such a soothing voice. If the fruit wasn't so deliciously, delightfully inviting, I wouldn't have gone after it. I mean, why couldn't it have been nice and gray and ugly? Why did it have to be fruit that seemed to make one wise? Why couldn't it have been fruit that made one dumb? Then I wouldn't have been so attracted to it. It's got to be somebody else's fault. It's certainly not mine. And do you understand that at some point what you're really doing is you're saying, Sin is not really that serious, so I don't really so I can deflect it away from me, or I can get rid of it in some obscure and, and that's the other aspect of it is that it then leads to the heart's ability to shift the blame. And then the last thing that it does is the heart's ability to avoid the cure. And don't you see that really what God is doing here with Adam is trying to get him to realize, Adam, don't you understand you have fouled up? You need to own up. Do you understand? That's what's going on here. God comes and says, Where are you? Where are you? And we looked at that last week, and I told you that that is an aspect of God's grace. He's asking the man, Where are you? Don't you understand? You're not where you were. You did not used to be a man hiding in the trees. When I came walking, you came running. Where are you? And do you understand that that's not just an issue of where are you in place and time? It's an issue of where are you in your standing, in your relationship? It's a pervasive question. Where are you? And you see how that penetrates us as well? Do you understand how, if we really start to get into this passage, it's a very relevant question to us. Where are you? The second question that he asked then of Adam after he asked him, where are you, is look at how Adam answers first. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That seems like a pretty logical answer, Right? You're a big God, you're holy, you're just, you're righteous in all your ways, you're almighty, you're all powerful. Isn't it interesting, men and women, that God's expectation of Adam in perfection was not that he was to be afraid? Isn't that interesting? Because the rest of Scripture shows people when God shows up being very afraid, His holiness overwhelms them. But God's expectation of Adam is to come into his presence and not be afraid and not feel ashamed. That's profound. And you see how God begins to draw Adam to question, Adam, there's something wrong here. You need to come to terms with that. It's not just a matter of making this blanket factual statement. Well, you came. I was scared. I'm naked. So I hid. Perfectly logical, isn't it? And God says, no, it betrays a problem. So he presses him further. And this is what he says. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, at some point, men and women, if you don't think that, that there's a certain level of humor or irony going on in Scripture, you, you miss the point. Don't you get that? God already knows. I mean, it's like a parent. You've been there, surely, if you're a parent or if you're an old enough sibling, you're way older than your younger siblings or a lot of. You've been there standing there. And, you know, I've, I've seen Olivia standing there, bless her heart, talking to Lydia May. Lydia May, did you get into my makeup? And Lydia May, with this. Makeup, which is smeared all the way around her eyes, is, is saying, "No, I didn't touch it." <laughs> well, then, how did you get that makeup over on your eyes? I don't know. <laughs> it just happened. A magical fairy descended and said, "Lydia May, your eyes are kind of plain." Pwang! Now they're not. I mean, and I'm not trying to pick up. We all don't we all do this? We all do this. And we, and the only difference between little children and adults is we're just way more sophisticated at it. We, we know how to deflect the overall. But the reality is is that the person already knows. God already knows. And once again, you see He basically lays it right out there for Adam. And all Adam has to do is go, I fouled up big time. And I don't know what to do with myself. I've never experienced feelings like this. I'm overwhelmed with who I am. I feel so weird. Everything's just strange. But that's not what he says. What does he say? Well, he moves on and says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now you see what Adam does. You all, we all see it, right? Well, it's that woman. And she's always talking. And you know, to finally get her just to be quiet, I hate. I mean, you know, we men, we've all been there, right? Sometimes you just eat the dinner because, quite frankly, it's just a whole lot easier just to eat. See, you, you, you're kind of going, well, I, that's not fun. No, but see, that is where we are. That is how we live. That is how we process. That is the way we think. And don't you see how God is trying to expose Adam and trying to spare him from where he is plunging himself more fully, more profoundly? Don't you feel the spiral doing this? And it's just going deeper and deeper and deeper. And... If you miss it here, I want you to understand that this is an act of mercy that God basically stops talking to Adam. It's almost like it's like he just says, Adam, you're just digging a deeper hole. Let's stop at six feet deep, okay? You're dead, so let's stop there. Because it's just going to get worse. And so he moves the conversation. And so we see what he does here. He then goes and says to the woman, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And really the 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 real I think maybe the way to get at this, which might be helpful to us, I mean that's a legitimate way to translate this, but maybe a way that helps us really get at the heart of this is to say something like this, how could you have done this? is what he's really saying. And he's not saying like, how could you have done this because he's really ticked off and he wants to punch her in the nose. I'm not saying that kind of how could you have done this. I mean, how could you have done this in the sense of in light of everything I have given you. there's no way I could have stacked the deck more in your favor. How, in light of that, could you have done this? How, in light of how much I've loved you and cared for you and shown you my goodness and delighted in you and given you this perfect garden in this world and given you this wonderful task of filling it, how could you have done this? Don't you see what you've done? Don't you understand how you've fouled it up? That's really what he's getting at. Do you see... How, Eve, you fouled this up. And Eve's answer is a confounding no. Because see, it's that creature you made and apparently gave him the ability to speak. And you see what's happening here with the heart? It wasn't that serious when she was being tempted... And now the blame shifting is going on. And the more the blame shifts, the less they're able to look to the cure. And that's what's going on in this text. That's what's going on here. And I want you in some ways to see, because see, at some point, you need to really be able to get inside of this text and feel the grief, the grievous reality that's going on here. Because men and women, you are the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. These people are not those people way back then. You are Adam and you are Eve. That's who you are. And you have to come to terms with this is often the manner in which we as human beings deal with God. It is. Where are you? What have you done? Who's told you that you should be afraid of me? Who's told you that I'm not a loving God? Who's told you that you can make sense of life? Who told you all those things? See, isn't that, isn't that the perplexity of life? Is it? Oftentimes we come to God thinking that somehow if I get close with God, he's going to explain to me all the bad things that have happened to me and why. He's going to make sense of everything. And the reality is the closer you get to God, the more he tends to keep saying, trust me, not this is why it makes sense, this is why this has happened, this is how. He doesn't do that. He just keeps saying that confounding, perplexing statement. Trust me. And that is very unsatisfying to people who are looking for answers. you understand that? I mean, we need to be able to, you need to be able to relate to that because how do you then begin to understand how someone who rejects God, why do they reject him? Because they basically have heard to the grapevine, he doesn't answer your questions. He tends to just ask you more questions, or he tends to say, you're just going to have to trust me on that. And in a world where our parents have said, trust me, and then messed us over, in a world where the church has said, trust me, and messed us over, in a world where the government said, trust me, and messed us over, that doesn't sound like a very satisfying answer. Do you understand? I want you to see that what's happening here is very germane to how we experience life. And what God comes to do to us is to bring us to a place where we realize that what we need more than anything else is not a bunch of answers. We need something that will remedy the confounding problem of sin and evil. Not how he's going to deal with it, but that he's going to deal with it. And see, that's what he's doing in this... What God ultimately is trying to do is not so much be a judge in the sense of just bringing them into the law court with His big gavel. It's more like as a judge, He comes as a physician. And what He's trying to do is to bring them to a place where they're willing to accept the diagnosis. Does that make sense? Think about this. What what does a doctor have to do when someone's in complete denial about the condition they have? Well, a doctor has to basically bring them along, if he's a good doctor, to a place where they're able to go, okay, do you understand this is your condition? Because you do realize this. Until someone really believes their condition is really bad and really life-threatening and everything really is, depends upon them listening and following the doctor's instructions, they're not going to do it. I can't remember what I was reading the other day, but I was reading it and it was important to me because um, George here in our congregation recently had open-heart surgery again, and, and I was reading this, and I think what they were basically saying in this uh, was that the average person, I think it's less than 5% of people who have open-heart surgery actually follow the doctor's orders after they have the surgery. Isn't that, Isn't that You're thinking, open-heart surgery. I mean, they cracked your body open, <laughs> wiggled around your heart, sewed you back up, it hurt like the dickens to heal, and so you go right back to the lifestyle you were living before that got you there in the first place. That makes perfect sense. But do you understand that we're no different when it comes to God? He's trying to get us to understand the diagnosis is you're really profoundly wicked, perverted, and screwed up. That's really where you are. Don't you see it? Don't you realize you have no real answers? And you're determined to run headlong into whatever it is you think is important. Because that's what you ought to do. And we always do what we ought to do. Right? That's what we do. So, rather than declaring themselves guilty and falling on the mercy of God... They press on in their delusion that somehow they're going to talk their way out of this situation. Well, I want to move forward a little bit and look at some things that happen here. And the second way I want us to look at this passage then is the results of the fall. Now we get the declarations. Now we find out it's not just the results of the fall in the sense of what they experienced when they first ate of the fruit. Obviously, they experienced the realities immediately. I feel naked. I feel estranged, I feel ashamed, all these things happen. But I want us to understand that the, the first result that happens out of all that is this profound alienation, and, they, and it begins to express itself in different ways, and I want to work through this and for us to see it. The alienation first is obviously from God, right? Why are you hiding from God? Isn't that why you ask him, where are you? They're hiding from Him. And so we have this sense of alienation from God. And as soon as we're alienated from God, as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks with community, remember what we talked about? In community, you need other people to really know yourself and other people. If you don't really have other people around you, you don't have God, what ends up starting to happen is you stop being able to really know yourself. And so the next thing that happens in this, of course, is alienation from ourselves. Adam feels weird in his own skin, right? I'm naked. I feel weird. I, I mean, realize before that's what it means not to feel weird in your own skin is you don't feel naked. You feel like I'm supposed to inhabit this space and this place and everything seems right and normal and he doesn't feel that way. And so he's alienated from himself. Then what that leads to is alienation from one another, right? That's why he sows fig leaves. I mean, who's he, who's he trying to kid when he sows fig leaves? I mean, God can see everything, right? So who's he really sowing the fig leaves for? Well, that woman over there, she might see me. Well, before you ate the fruit, that didn't seem to matter. Why does it matter now? See, alienation from another person. And that alienation, realize, doesn't just stay with alienation from you or you or you. It also gets transferred into that group or this group or the other group. Us and them, right? we are alienated from one another. You start to understand how racism, how sexism, you start to see where all the isms find their birth. Because there's the them and they make me feel uncomfortable. And I don't like feeling uncomfortable. I quite frankly want to walk around naked. And since I want to walk around naked and they make me feel uncomfortable, they gots to go. You see? Whoever that is. You understand where this alienation is working to. And finally, we see in these, in these texts the alienation from the world. And I want to show you how these things begin to happen. Look at what happens here. God basically says to Adam, as he looks at him, he says, Look, this is what has happened to you. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the fruit of which I command you shall not eat of, curses the ground because of you. Now, isn't it profoundly interesting that God curses the ground because of Adam, and yet the curse is supposed to affect him? And It does. So what I want you to start to understand when we start to talk about the world as we look at it is this. When you go to work and it's profoundly difficult and things don't work and the computer doesn't work, right, Steve? And it's really irritating as I'll get out when you've just spent mega dollars rebuilding the darn thing and it goes sour again for the umpteenth time. And a friend of mine just bought an Apple computer recently and he, the whole reason why he bought the Apple computer is because Apple computers don't crash, right? Well, his did. Thank you very much. I want you to understand that right here is what we're looking at. Things go wrong in this world. Cars don't start. Tires go flat. Engines throw rods. Oil leaks out. People annoy the credit of you at work. Your boss asks unreasonable expectations of you. The corporation passes legislation which has no thought to anybody in the corporation except for the CEO who, thank you very much, lays off 5,000 people and gives himself a $5 million raise. And these things happen all the time. Don't you understand what's really going on there? Cursed is the ground because of you. You will toil with the sweat of your brow all the days of your life. You live in a world that has an issue with you. It is not happy with you. Why? Because its maker cursed it because of you. That would tend to make most people a little upset. You did something wrong, and I got kicked in the pants. I'm not exactly feeling really warm and toasty fuzzy with you at the moment. You see what I'm saying? And that's really what's being said here. The ground has been cursed, so it shouldn't shock us that the ground makes it difficult, makes it hard. You're alienated from other people, so why should it shock you when people act alienated from you? But it bothers us, doesn't it? It affects how we live our lives, doesn't it? It's profoundly affecting us even right now because even in this room there are people that we feel alienated from that we feel at odds with that we feel discomfort around and it just perpetuates ourselves. and what's really difficult is when you're living in a house with someone and they alienate you And what's really difficult is when you know you've done everything that the warranty told you to do to keep the car or the motorcycle or the lawnmower or the computer up and running, you've defragged exactly when they told you to defrag. You've compressed files. You've done everything. And the thing still runs slower than dirt. It's just slow. And you can't come to terms with that overwhelms you see what i want you to understand is that god brings crushing news what could be more crushing than telling a woman your children are going to be a pain to you all the days of their lives and you shouldn't be shocked see i don't just think this passage says it's just in childbearing i think it's in child rearing I mean, think about what the Proverbs says. A wise son brings joy to his father, but a foolish son brings grief to his mother. Now, isn't that? See, I think that's exactly what the pro- Proverbs is looking back to. It's right here. See, if the son, and we know how this works, right? If the son's doing great things, the dad says, That's my boy. And if, he, and if the son's doing screwed up things, he's going, What's wrong with you, woman? Why don't you do something with your son? And even if we don't say it because we're much too godly to say things like that, we think it all the time. He's always your son when he's doing something wrong. And he's always my son when he's doing great things. Right? And don't you understand that right here in the midst of all this, it is a result of the fall. Think about this what's even worse. Because look at what God tells Adam and Eve. Eve because you sought to usurp your husband's position, he's now going to put his heel on your neck all your days. And Adam, he's told, because you listen to the voice of your wife instead of to my voice, your work is going to be a pain in the neck all your days. Isn't that kind of just downright frustrating when at the end of the day, as you get to the end of this passage, you go, whose problem is it that my life is a wreck and a mess and screwed up and I'm alienated from everything and everybody? Whose fault is that? And you know what we love to do? Well, it's Adam and Eve's fault. I mean, it's all there. The Bible says so. We just read it in the confession, right? Right. Because of Adam's choice, all his posterity, that would be us, all of us, fell. So it's, it's at whew, We're off the hook, right? It's Adam's fault. Oh, Adam. If he'd just done it right, we wouldn't be suffering like this. And here's the problem. Remember what I said at the very beginning. You miss the point of this passage if you think you're somehow different than Adam. You see, everyone in this room already knows, for the most part, the old old story, right? You know it. God doesn't leave them there, right? He comes and He comes to rescue them, despite themselves. You already know that, so why don't you live differently? Didn't you hear a particular person say, If you love me, you'll keep my commands? Well, what's your problem? Do you understand the profundity of what's happening here? This is us. The results of the fall pervade us all over the place. And what I want you to really begin to see here is what what God, in doing what He does here and bringing these judgments on Adam and Eve, what He's not doing is saying, Adam and Eve, because you sinned, you've got to pay. What He's really saying is, because of sin, you've got to be restrained. Do you understand the difference? What he's really saying here is, is that if, if I basically just deal with sin and realize I'm going to take a long time to do it, what's going to happen to humanity if he lets them eat of the tree of life? And we're going to get in that next week. What's going to happen to humanity if he does all these do- You see what I'm saying? God actually passes judgment not as a means of punishing them in the sense of you're going to get it because you did it. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm bringing a rod of chastisement upon you to hone you in and to keep you from going everywhere you go if I just let you run amok with yourself. Does that make sense? It's actually in some sense the fact that God does what he does is to restrain sin. It's to restrain Adam and Eve and their posterity from going all over the place. He's actually setting in place a way of dealing with things so that they cannot ultimately do everything their heart would desire to do, which would be only evil continually. Isn't that what we hear in Genesis chapter 6? The heart of all men was to do only evil continually. And so God sets up restraints in light of sin. Not the way He originally set it up. In light of their sin. And so what we need to see then is the reality is that there is a problem underneath our problems, right? Alienation's not the problem. Alienation from God is not the only problem. Alienation from ourselves is not the, not the root problem. Alienation from others is not the root problem. Alienation from our world is not the root problem. They're problems. And do you understand that in some sense the world always tries to deal with our problems by trying to deal with one of those problems? Well, if we fix society, people will be better. If we just get people to feel better about themselves, then they'll be better. If we just can fix people's spiritual life with God, Jesus and me, they'll be better. And you see that this even affects the liberal and the conservative church? See, what if the conservative church says is what you really need is to get your spiritual act together. And if you get right with God everything's great and what's the liberal church say the liberal church says if we get out here and really love people and love mercy and love do justice then everything's going to be okay and the problem here is is that what scripture says is it's a comprehensive reality which requires a complete and effective answer which deals with all the areas of alienation that sin has called us to and not just one of those in particular This is why oftentimes the conservative church and the liberal church are completely irrelevant to what's really going on in the real world. Or they only touch a segment of it instead of having real answers into the whole thing. Or may I should say the real answer into the whole thing. Because see, if the problem really is sin, then what do we need? We need an answer for sin. Sin not an answer for social problems, not an answer for... You see what I'm saying? Those answers begin to pale in comparison because if you can get the problem underneath the problem solved, then you start to have a means of dealing with all those other problems. And this is exactly what God begins to do when He speaks to the serpent. Look at what He says back in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, or your seed and her seed. And for those of us using the ESV, we have to deal with the fact that it says bruised. I don't think that's the best translation of the Hebrew word. I think the Hebrew word is best translated crushed, which now will give you why I talk about the sermon title being crushing. So it should read, I believe, it should say, He shall crush your head and you shall crush his heel." Now, the reason why I think it's important that you understand this is because the same word is used when Jacob and Esau are wrestling in the womb. And it says the brothers sought to crush one another. And you're seeing right here in Genesis 3.15 what's being said here. I'm putting enmity between those who follow you, serpent, and those who follow are in the line of the seed of the woman. He's saying there's enmity. And what he's really saying here when he says enmity is not something like he's saying, well, there's hatred between you in the sense of like somehow that these are the good people and those are the bad people. What he's really saying is, you see, what I'm going to do is all of you are bad. And what I'm actually going to do is to bring a group out and and make them righteous and make them love righteousness. They couldn't do it on their own. See, the enmity is actually redeeming people because realize everybody on the planet right now is at enmity with God. When he makes this declaration of the serpent, Adam and Eve are at enmity with God. So the fact that he makes this declaration and says, I will put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed is already there to begin to say, I'm going to have to do something about the fact that these people are at enmity with me, all of them. And what's he going to do? Well, he now says the reality of that offspring, the fruit of that womb ultimately will result in one who will crush your head, who will utterly smash you. And see, what's really being said here is what I'm going to do is I'm going to send someone to do what Adam should have done. Adam should not have stood there silently in the garden going... While Eve was being tempted, he should have walked over as the Lord of this planet, taken his heel, and basically planted it firmly on the top of that serpent's head, and said, Be done with you and be gone. He didn't do it. He didn't do it. And so what God says is, is that, you know what? That's not the last part of the story. See, at the end of the day, God is crushing, crushing, crushing so that these people will come to realize that they need Him and that He has already, from the very beginning, provided the answer. See, what they need is a remedy for sin. And what God comes to say, even as He curses the serpent is, the remedy is already in place. So, one of the most amazing aspects of this declaration is this, that the very place where hopelessness began, namely, the woman, is the very place where hope begins. The woman. A seed of the woman. See, don't you understand that that runs contrary to nature? Right? Women don't have seed, right? We know this. We've, we've been to biology lessons. Women have eggs. But it's the seed of the woman. You see, see, if you're ready now, we're ready now to come and ask these questions. If sin is serious, if it truly alienates us from every facet of our lives, if it is the problem underneath the problem, then we need someone who is able to deal with sin. And in this passage, what we have is God declaring that he's going to send someone to deal with sin. And so the natural question we should ask is, who is it? And don't just run there and say, oh, well, of course we know it's Jesus. So no, what I want you to understand is there's all kinds of people that don't know that. See, I want you to understand that when you're thinking about this passage, this passage is incredibly evangelistic because it begins to speak right into where people live. Alienation, frustration, irritation, Isolation, I mean, all the shuns you can think of, this passage deals with it. Starvation, disease, harm, illness. You name the problem, this passage deals with it. Now, do you know people that are dealing with all those problems? Just like you. And who desperately need to understand why are all these problems here? And if all these problems are rooted in this problem of sin, is there someone who can help us? And the answer is yes. And this is how Galatians 4-5 through, 5, 4, 4 through 5 says it. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And Romans 8 tells us something very interesting. That the earth groans in anticipation of the revealing of the adoption of the adopted sons. And you start to realize how all of this, because of Jesus, all of this begins to begin unraveled. And you understand how that gives us hope as we're people? Here's the practical application for us. We have the great privilege of going out and seeing to it that the gospel is not just an answer to deal with our spiritual alienation. It's not just an answer to deal with us feeling good about ourselves. It is a comprehensive message which begins to affect every area of life that we involve ourselves in. And so that what we see is we have the opportunity to start rolling back the effects of sin everywhere we go. If Jesus isn't playing, and He's not, when He says the kingdom of God is within you, then what does the kingdom of God look like? The kingdom of God looks like something that's rolling back the effects of sin which means that every single one of you, whether you're a third grader, a kindergartner, or you're 80 years old or 90 years old and are having trouble walking, everywhere you go, you have the opportunity, if you know Jesus, to begin to have an impact in your world to advance the cause of Christ in bringing an answer to people who are in desperate need. And this morning, if you're one of those people, You today before you leave can know in fact that the real answer to the problem underneath the problem has been lifted up before you and you can take that answer home with you today. Not as some package but as a real person who will transform you, renew you, and make you into something where you begin to not feel weird in your skin. And to be be okay with yourself and the world and others around you. And I pray that God makes it so, even today in our midst.